Take your Bibles out and turn with me today to the book of Romans. Romans chapter 8. Romans chapter 8. Uh, let's continue looking along the same topic that we began last week, living in light of the resurrection of Jesus Christ. You'll find Romans chapter 8. We'll be reading some selected verses down through the chapter, and I'll be saying more about that a little bit later. We're going to begin in verse 1 and read down through verse 4, and then we'll be skipping down to verse 18. Paul writes, There is therefore now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. For the law of the Spirit of life has set you free in Jesus Christ from the law of sin and death. For God has done what the law, weakened by the flesh, could not do by sending His own Son in the likeness of sinful flesh and for sin. He condemned sin in the flesh in order that the righteous requirement of the law might be fulfilled in us who walk not according to the flesh, but according to the Spirit. Down in verse 18, For I consider that the sufferings of this present time are not worth comparing with the glory that is to be revealed to us. For the creation waits with eager longing for the revealing of the sons of God. For the creation was subjected to futility, not willingly, but because of Him who subjected it, in hope that the creation itself will be set free from its bondage to corruption and obtain the freedom of the glory of the children of God. For we know that the whole creation has been groaning together in the pains of childbirth until now. And not only the creation, but we ourselves who have the first fruits of the Spirit groan inwardly as we wait eagerly for adoption as sons, the redemption of our bodies. For in this hope we were saved. Now hope that is, that is seen is not hope, for who hopes for what he sees? But if we hope for what we do not see, we wait for it in patience. Likewise, the Spirit helps us in our weakness, for we do not know what to pray for as we ought, but the Spirit Himself intercedes for us with groanings too deep for words. And he who searches hearts knows what is the mind of the Spirit, because the Spirit intercedes for the saints according to the will of God. Father, we're so grateful for the precious promises that we read in, in Romans chapter 8, showing us that in Christ, we have victory. Lord, whether we're talking about that past aspect of salvation when we were justified, whether we're talking about the present aspect of being sanctified or the future aspect of being glorified, we have victory that is in Jesus Christ our Lord. And we're not alone because you are at work in your children. Lord, help us to live according to your promises. God, in this world of tribulation, I pray that we would not take our eyes off of Jesus and what you've promised to us. But help us to be steadfast and true. And to be a witness to others around us who do not share our hope. For it's in Jesus' name that we pray. Amen. As you hear the following story, I want to ask you to disregard for a moment any convictions that you might have against gambling. On Friday, March 29th, 1984, Robert Cunningham ate a meal of linguine and clam sauce at his favorite restaurant, Sal's Pizzeria, where he had been a regular customer for some seven years. His waitress, Phyllis Penza, had worked at Sal's for 19 years. After his meal, Cunningham made a good-natured offer to Penza. He said that she could either have a tip or split his earnings if his number was drawn in the upcoming New York lotto. Penza decided to take a chance on the lottery and she and Cunningham sat down and chose the numbers together. 
Well, on Saturday night, Cunningham won. The jackpot was $6 million. And then he faced a moment of truth. Would he keep his promise? Would he give the waitress a tip of $3 million? Cunningham, a police sergeant, husband, father of four, and grandfather of three, said, I'm not going to back out. I'm going to be true to my word. Besides, friendship means more to me than money. He kept his promise and he split the winnings. Sound familiar? Sure it does. Hollywood got a hold of that story and they made a movie out of it starring Nicolas Cage and Bridget Fonda entitled, It Could Happen to You. Now the movie was accurate insofar as Nicolas Cage was a New York police officer and Brenda Fo- uh, Bridget Fonda was a waitress, but then the movie went on to turn it into a love story between the two. However, the real characters behind the movie are, are happily married to other people and they have never been anything other than friends to one another. Promises. Fortunately, the story of Robert Cunningham and Phyllis Penza is a great story of integrity and promises kept. But ladies and gentlemen, I'm here to tell you today that there is a greater one who has made promises to us and he always keeps his promises. God is a God of promises. Paul says to to uh, Titus in Titus 1-2 that we serve a God who cannot lie, who has promised to us eternal life. Last week we talked about living in light of the resurrection of Jesus Christ and we spoke of our new position in Christ and the new priorities that ought to grow out of our new position. And we saw that in our Christian life there are things that we need to put off like, a, like an old dirty suit of clothes. There are sins of the flesh, sins of the mind, sins of the mouth, sins of the body that we need to put off like a dirty suit of clothes. And, and there, are, there are things of righteousness that since we're new in Christ we need to put on like a new set of clothes. And so we concentrated last week on these responsibilities that we have to put off and put on. Well, whereas last week we concentrated on our responsibilities, today I want us to concentrate on the assurances that we have because of the resurrection of Jesus Christ. God has given us sure and certain promises and these promises serve as assurances for children of God. Now we're going to look at those from Romans 8 this morning. Some have referred to Romans 8 as perhaps the greatest chapter in all the Bible. I don't know that we ought to make those designations because all of the Bible is the inspired Word of God. When you read a list of names in the book of Numbers, for instance, folks, that is just as inspired as this chapter is. But I know what people are saying. This is a chapter that as you read it, it gives great great encouragement. It gives great strength and hope to those who know Christ. Now we're not going to look at all the chapter exhaustively. If we were to do that, we would need a series of messages, probably 10 to 12 messages. And Lord willing, I'm going to do that soon on the the book of Romans chapter 8 in particular. We're going to look at the whole chapter in its entirety. But this morning we're just going to look at an overview of the chapter, looking at these promises, looking at these assurances that we have in light of the resurrection of Jesus Christ. The first one of those assurances I want you to write down this morning from verse 1 is no condemnation. Paul says there is therefore now no condemnation to those who are in Christ. Jesus. 
Now, folks, if the following words from this point sound familiar, they should. Because if you have any sort of memory whatsoever, much of what I'm going to say under this first point, we covered a couple of months ago back in January when we observed the Lord's Supper together. And under this first point, I'm going to say much of what I said then. I want you to listen to the following words by Dr. Derek Thomas. Guilty. Guilty. I can still hear that word as I close my eyes. It was 1975 in Oxford, England. I was passing by the city courthouse where a murder trial was reaching its conclusion. The details were gruesome and the daily papers had carried detailed accounts of each day's court proceedings. I'm not sure what made me attend the final day, but I did. I watched with fascination as the judge placed a black shawl on his head just before he pronounced the final verdict, guilty. A roar of approval erupted in the courthouse. The defendant was found guilty of murder and condemned to a life sentence with no possibility of parole. Now folks, as bad as those words, as bad as that sentence would sound to you if you were that particular defendant, I want you to listen to the words uh, out of the book of Revelation that are even worse if you fit into that category. John writes in Revelation 20, Then I saw a great white throne, and him who was seated on it, from his presence earth and sky fled away, and no place was found for them. And I saw the dead, the great and small, standing before the throne, and books were opened. And then another book was opened, which is the book of life, and the dead were judged by what was written in the books according to what they had done. And the sea gave up the dead who were in it. Death and Hades gave up the dead who were in them, and they were judged, each one of them, according to what they had done. Then death and Hades were thrown into the lake of fire. This is the second death, the lake of fire. And if anyone's name was not found written in the book of life, he was thrown into to the lake of fire. Jesus himself said in Matthew 25, and these will go away into everlasting punishment. In Matthew 13, Jesus also said, in that place there will be weeping and gnashing of teeth. Ladies and gentlemen, the worst thing that any individual could ever face would be to stand before the sovereign God of the universe and hear the word guilty. And yet every day, thousands and thousands of people die and go out into eternity. 6,400 an hour. Over 150,000 a day die and go out into eternity. And do you ever wonder in your mind, were they ready to meet God? Well, the Bible says most are not. Most are guilty. And that makes Romans 8.1 the greatest declaration that's ever been uttered. Romans 8.1 tells me that the guilty are acquitted through faith in Jesus Christ. There is no other declaration that could ever carry the weight of those words right there. Those are the sweetest words that have ever been uttered, not only in the English language, but any language for that matter. There is therefore now no condemnation to those who are in Christ Jesus. Folks, right there in those words, we have the core of the gospel. Think of that. We were guilty. You were guilty, I was guilty. The Bible says all we like sheep have gone astray. Every one of us has sinned and come short of the glory of God. And the wages of sin is death. We were all guilty. There's not a single one of us in this room that either has not been guilty or maybe there are some still outside of Christ. You still are guilty before God. And through Christ, the Bible says... The guilty are set free. There is no condemnation to those who are in Christ Jesus. 
Derek Thomas goes on to write, All people are totally depraved. Their motives, words, deeds, and thoughts are affected by their identity as sinners. The natural inclination of the heart, will, emotions, conscience, and physical body is in the opposite direction to holiness. As J.C. Ryle said, sin pervades and runs through every part of our moral constitution and every faculty of our minds. The understanding, the affections, the reasoning powers, the will are all more or less infected. But we're more than guilty, we stand condemned. And so God rightly pronounces a death sentence, a spiritual death sentence against those outside of Christ. But we see here that in Christ, believers enter into a whole new standing, a whole new position before God. Romans 5, 1 says, Therefore being justified by faith, we have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ. Folks, I want you to let that set in. Not only do you have peace, but you have peace with God through the Lord Jesus Christ. For those who are in Christ, you've been redeemed, you've been set free. All of your sins have forever been washed away, past, present, and future, and you have a new standing before God. You are at peace with God. Now I want you to understand what Paul is not saying. He's not saying that this deliverance is achieved by the believer such as some kind of perfection that the believer achieves on his own. The believer does not obtain the total eradication of sin during his earthly life. Just read Romans 7, the ongoing struggle that Paul himself had. In 1 John 1, 8, the Bible says, if we say we have no sin, we're deceiving ourselves and the truth is not in us. Neither is Paul saying in Romans 8, 1 that the believer will somehow or another escape God's discipline. Hebrews 12 tells us that God disciplines His children. He disciplines those whom He loves. Also very important to the discussion, the Bible is not saying in Romans 8, 1 that the believer will have absolutely no accountability before God. Paul says in 2 Corinthians 5, 10 that we must all appear before the judgment seat of Christ. But what Romans 8, 1 promises is that the one who is in Christ will not have to fear facing condemnation. That would have been a good place for an amen. The one who is in Christ will never have to fear condemnation. We'll not hear the words, depart from me for I never knew you. We will not suffer the penalty for our sins because Christ Jesus has already suffered that penalty for us in our behalf. 1 Peter 3.18 says, The just died for the unjust that he might bring us to God. Folks, that is the gospel uh, that is the good news of the gospel of Jesus Christ. There is therefore now no condemnation to those who are in Christ Jesus. That is the first promise we have here in Romans chapter 8. Secondly, I want you to see with me no frustration. No frustration. Look at verses 18 and following. He says, For I consider that the sufferings of this present time are not worth comparing with the glory that is to be revealed to us. Paul essentially says, I've thought about this business of suffering. I have considered carefully this business of suffering. Some translations use the word reckon, consider or reckon. It is a mathematical term. It implies a careful assessment, a careful calculation. Paul is saying, I've given serious analysis to this business of suffering. And indeed he had. He had experienced it himself. I want you to turn in your Bibles to 2 Corinthians 11 with me for a moment. 2 Corinthians 11 and beginning in verse 24 describes all of the suffering that Paul went through in his lifetime. He says, five times I received from the Jews 39 lashes. Three times I was beaten with rods. Once I was stoned. Three times I was shipwrecked. A night and a day I've spent in the deep. 
I've been on frequent journeys in dangers from rivers, dangers from robbers, dangers from my countrymen, dangers from the Gentiles, dangers in the city, dangers in the wilderness, dangers on the sea, dangers among false brethren. I've been in labor and hardship through many sleepless nights and hunger and thirst, often without food and cold and exposure. And apart from such external things, there's the daily pressure on me of concern for all the churches. Paul was certainly not a stranger to suffering in his life. And the fact of the matter is, just like Paul, we suffer as well in this world. We experience trials. We experience heartaches. We experience death of loved ones. We experience illness. Some people experience tragedy and divorce. And even in the world today, so many families all over the globe are experiencing the, the horrible uh, the, the workings out of terrorism. 1 Peter 1, 6-8 talks about the trying of our faith. He says, In this you greatly rejoice, even though now for a little while, if necessary, you have been distressed by various trials so that the proof of your faith being more precious than gold which is perishable even though tested by fire may be found to result in praise and glory and honor at the revelation of Jesus Christ. Folks, God tries our faith. Sometimes our trials are not from God but sometimes they are. On top of that, we live in a fallen world. You see, when Adam and Eve sinned, the whole creation, Romans 8 says, was subjected to futility. And in a world like this, people suffer. Sometimes people suffer as a result of their own sin or they may suffer as a result of somebody else's sin. You may be suffering because you need to remember we have an enemy, Satan, and the Bible says he's like a roaring lion seeking somebody to devour. Sometimes we suffer because God is testing us and sometimes we suffer and we never know the reason why. It's like God said to Paul in the case of his thorn in the flesh. He said, Paul, you're just going to have to trust me. I'm going to leave that suffering in your life and through that trial you're going to learn that my grace is sufficient for you. Thinking about suffering could have the effect upon us of really frustrating us, really troubling us, and bumming us out. Nobody likes to suffer. Folks, if I were a gambling man, there's a bet I could make this morning, and I know beyond a shadow of a doubt it's a bet I would win. I could bet double or nothing. I could bet everything I own double or nothing, and I could end up winning that bet with a whole bunch of money if I were a bet man. You know what that bet would be? That bet would be I can guarantee you not one of you in here this morning, this, uh, this morning when you got up and you read your Bible and you had your devotion time and you had your prayer time I can promise you not one of you in here said God I need some suffering in my life God I need some I need some trials I need some hardship I've got it too easy in life I'm too comfortable God would you send me some bad things in my life that I can experience did anybody in here this morning pray that prayer anybody see I would have won the bet but Paul says he had thought about this he thought about all this suffering and all the frustration it could bring if you were to concentrate only on the hardship that you were going through. He said, but in thinking about all that, I've also thought about the future glory. 
1 John 3, 2, the Bible says, We will be like Him, for we will see Him as He is. As He has a glorified body, we will have a glorified body. We will see God's glory. We will see all the glories of heaven. We'll have new bodies. We'll be in a place that's perfect without any sin. There will be no disease there to affect us. Death will not affect us. Bad things in the world will be gone. They'll they'll not affect us because God says He's making all things new. But heaven is not simply going to be a place where the bad of this earth is no longer present. You see, the absence of bad is only half the picture. He goes on here to talk about the glories of heaven. It's not just a place of the absence of bad, but of the presence of great glory. We see glimpses of that glory now every time somebody is saved and their life is turned around and changed. Folks, that's a a glimpse of God's glory. The new birth is the greatest miracle of all. We see glimpses of God's glory every time one of our prayers is answered. We witness God's glory even now in so many ways, but all of those ways are somewhat incomplete. Imagine the day when you're going to be with the Lord forever and there's no evil, there's no suffering. Instead, there's only glory and that glory is so great it's even hard to fathom. What Paul is saying is nothing bad that we go through now can even begin to compare with that. That phrase, not to be compared with, circle those words, not to be compared with is a translation of a word that has to do with the weight of something. The weight of something. Now, folks, let me explain it this way. Imagine if you had one of those old-timey scales, those those two pans that would hang, hang on that scale. On one end of the scale, you would put all the hardships of your life, all the trials and tribulations of your life, all the bad things that you go through in your life. You'd pile all those things up on one end of the scale, and that scale might tip downwards. But then you take all the glories of heaven and you put those on that other side and what Paul is saying here is you're not going to have balance he says the future glories of heaven are going to far outweigh anything you go through now the future the present hardship you go through is not even to be compared with the future glory that's going to be revealed to the children of God. Now folks, Paul could make that kind of assessment because remember, he had experienced both the glories of heaven and hardship. Remember 2 Corinthians 12? He says, I know a man, speaking of himself, who was caught up to the third heaven. What's the third heaven? Well, the first heaven is where the birds fly above our heads. The second heaven where the planets are. The third heaven is the throne of God. And Paul says, I know a man who was caught all the way up to the third heaven. And he says, I saw things there that I'm not even allowed to speak of. And he said, but so that I wouldn't be puffed up with pride, God gave me a thorn in the flesh. And Paul suffered with... The man who had seen all the glories of heaven had to suffer with that thorn in the flesh. And he prayed three times that God would take it away. And God said, I'm not going to take it away. My grace is sufficient for you. The point I'm making when Paul says what we go through now can't be compared to the future glory, he's a man qualified to make that assessment because he had seen both and experienced both. It's like he gives the analogy here of childbirth. Think of everything you go through now compared with the future glory. And he uses the analogy of childbirth. You know one thing about, fortunately, about women? Probably 90% of women, maybe 95% of all women. You know what? You know what, little girl, one thing little girls grow up, one of the things little girls want to grow up and be one day is what? A mama. 
Have they never read the accounts of labor and delivery that women go through? We had a woman in our church a couple of weeks ago, 48 hours of hard labor. But yet 90, 95% of all women want to be a mother one day. They want to go through all of that pain, all of that hardship, all of that trying time of delivery. Why? Because what they're going to receive out of that, there's going to be that beautiful little baby boy or girl that they're going to hold in their arms. And when they hold that little baby in their arms, all that pain and all that labor they went through, it's going to be past tense. They're not even going to be thinking about that anymore because they're going to have that little baby. That's the analogy Paul gives here. All of the pain we go through is not, it's like childbirth, like labor, and it's nothing to be compared to what God has waiting on us one day. And so what Paul is saying is the Christian doesn't need to grow frustrated as we walk through this world and go through the valleys of this world. And as we go through the valleys of this world, yes, there is groaning. All the creation around us is groaning and we groan. But in our present suffering, characterized by groaning, he moves on to point out that we're not alone. The third thing I want you to see this morning is he points out a promise to the children of God that there is no isolation. There is no isolation. You're not alone. Look at verse 26. He says, Likewise, the Spirit helps us in our weakness, for we do not know what to pray for as we ought, but the Spirit Himself intercedes for us with groanings too deep for words. And he who searches hearts knows what is the mind of the Spirit because the Spirit intercedes for the saints according to the will of God. He's pointing out here that we're not alone. There's no isolation for the child of God. Yes, we have a future redemption. Yes, we have present suffering. But even now, in our present suffering, we're not alone. We're not in isolation. We have the help of God's Spirit. He helps us in our weakness. Now, folks, when would you say man is at his very best? You know what I would answer to that? Man is at his very best when he is on his knees or face before God praying. That's when man's at his very best. And yet what Paul is saying here is even when we are at our very best, our very best is still characterized by weakness and by shortcoming. When we're praying to God, sometimes we don't know what to pray for. And the reason we don't know what to pray for is because we don't have insight to know what the future is in that situation. And so the way I'm praying about something today, God may be working in a way there's a different outcome than what I'm praying about. Remember what David said about God in Psalm 139? In Psalm 139, he says, Lord, you're everywhere. If I sit down, you're there. If I lie down, you're there. If I rise up and go about in my life, you're there. There is nowhere I can get away from you. If I go up, you're there. If I go down, you're there. If I go east or west, you're there. You're everywhere around me, and you know everything about me. What's he talking about? He's talking about an attribute, attributes of God there, the omnipotence of God and the omnipresence presence of God. God knows everything and God is everywhere. God sees tomorrow. God sees next year. God sees into eternity in the future. I don't. And so what he's saying here, men when they pray, their prayers are characterized by weakness because they don't see all of this. But he says the Spirit comes alongside of us to help us. 
He does so according to the will of God. Look at that word help in verse 26. That's an interesting word when he says the Spirit comes alongside of us to help us. That particular Greek word help only occurs one other time in the Greek New Testament. And that one other time that it occurs in the Greek New Testament is in that story in Luke chapter 10 about Mary and Martha. Mary is seated at the feet of Jesus, and she's listening. And where's Martha? Martha's in the kitchen, and she's fretful. She's clanging the pots and pans. Here's Jesus and all his disciples, and Mary, try, I mean Martha, trying to be the good hostess, is trying to get a meal ready together for him. So she's in the kitchen, and she's frustrated, and she's panicking, and, and banging the pots and pans together. And finally she comes into the room where Jesus is and says, Lord, don't you care? Tell my sister to help. What kind of help did she want? She wanted practical, everyday kind of help. She wanted help carving the lamb and getting the biscuits or the cornbread out of the oven. She wanted help with the day-to-day nitty-gritty. And what Paul is saying here, in our weakness which even our prayer life illustrates how weak we are. In our weakness, the Holy Spirit comes along and He helps us. He intercedes for us in the daily nitty-gritty things that we face. And He does so according to the will of God. And notice what Paul says there. He, He perfectly intercedes according to the will of God because He knows the heart of God. He's the Spirit of the living God. He knows His own heart. And He knows your heart. And He knows your need. So here's God's heart and here's your heart and here's your need and the Holy Spirit as He intercedes for us. He knows how to perfectly bring all of those things together and make intercession for you. Isn't that great? Folks, that means that we have an advocate before the Father, Jesus Christ the righteous. We have a sympathetic high priest, Jesus, and we have an intercessor, the Holy Spirit. And what he's saying here is that we're not alone. We're not isolated. He gets right in the middle of your suffering and weakness and hardship with you, and he's able to intercede for you according to the will of God. Then he moves on here to talk about no limitation. No limitation, he says in verse 28, And we know that for those who love God, all things work together for good, for those who were called according to His purpose. For those whom He foreknew, He also predestined to be conformed to the image of His Son in order that He might be the firstborn among many brothers. And those whom He predestined, He also called. And those whom He called, He also justified. And those He justified, He also glorified. Now folks, I want you to think about something. On the basis of what we've just said about verse 26... If God enters into our suffering and He makes intercession for us according to verse 26, is it any wonder that verse 28 happens? You see the connection between those two verses? If He's interceding for us in our weakness, it's no wonder that all things work together for good to those who love God. Now I want you to notice what this verse is saying and what it's not saying. First of all, he says not some things work together, but all things work together. All things work together for good. This verse is also not teaching that everything that you experience in life is good. There are bad things in life. There's disease. Think of cancer. There's sinful things that happen. There's wickedness in this world. Paul is not saying that everything in and of itself is good. 
Don't ever tell somebody that everything is good. I remember Dr. Jack McCormick, one of my New Testament professors at Southwestern Seminary, he said he knew a family one time that they had a 16-year-old daughter who was viciously murdered. And at the funeral home, a well-meaning Christian couple came through the line and told those parents said, I want you to understand, based on Romans 8, 28, what happened to your daughter is good. McCormick said, don't ever call the breaking of God's law, God's will. Murder's not good. Paul is not saying everything is good. But he's saying that God is able to work good in everything to those who love God. And he says this is an assurance we have. We know. He doesn't say we feel. If you're going through a valley or a hard time right now, you probably don't feel like that's something good or that God, God can work good out of it. You don't feel like it, but you can know it that God can even use that trial or tribulation you're going through to work good. In fact, you know what? Some of the most hurtful things in our life, some of the worst things in our life, when we look back on those things years from now, we might see the hand of God in those things more than other things in our life. God is not the God of the deist. Remember the deist? The deist said God create. he's kind of like a clockmaker. A clockmaker who builds a clock and winds it up and he sits it up on a mantle and he walks away from it, never to go back to it. And some of the deists said that's how God is with creation. He just created everything and built in all these natural laws and then he's turned his back on his creation. No, 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 no. That's not the God of the Bible. The God of the Bible is at work. Jesus said, I am working and my Father is working to this very hour. And He's working to cause all things to work together for good to those who love Him. This is not a promise for everybody. It is a promise for God's children to those who love Him and are the called according to His purpose. Remember what Paul said to Timothy in 2 Timothy chapter 2? He said, Timothy, know this, God knows those who are His. He was talking to Timothy about Hymenaeus and Philetus, two men who were false teachers who were troubling Timothy and the church. And Paul said to Timothy, listen, Timothy, God knows those who are His. And what he was referring to here, what Paul was quoting, God knows those who are his, that is a verse that goes back to Numbers chapter 16. In Numbers chapter 16, we find Korah's rebellion. Remember Korah? who Korah got an army of, of the Israelites together and they came against Moses and Aaron and said, who do you think you are being our spiritual leaders? We, we want to have part in this too. We want to do all this. And, and, and Moses said, the Lord knows those who are His. And remember what happened to Korah and everybody with Korah? The Bible says the ground opened up and swallowed them. The Lord knows those who are His. To those who are His, to those who are the called according to His purpose, He's able to work all things together for good. There was Joseph. Joseph sold into slavery by his brothers, imprisoned. Imprisoned unjustly in Egypt for something he didn't do. He was forgotten about for a long time. And then finally God delivered him and used him mightily for the deliverance of many people from starvation, including his own people. Folks, centuries before the Apostle Paul ever penned Romans 8.28 in the New Testament, Joseph stated the truth found in this verse. He saw his brothers and he said to his brothers, What you intended for evil. Evil, God meant for good. For those who know God, those that are the called according to His purpose, 
He works all things together for good. Now, when you say He works all things together for good, what does that mean? Somebody says, what does that mean? Does good mean that God is at work to make you rich, to make you wealthy? Well, if that's the good that God intends, then why are all Christians not why are all Christians not wealthy? If the good that God intends is for you to be healthy, then why are all Christians not healthy? Why do some suffer diseases? What's the good that He works? Well, the passage tells us. The passage tells us the good He is working is that we would be conformed to the image of Christ. God is working all things together for good to make you more like Jesus. That's the good that He's working. And then finally, He talks about no separation. Pick up reading with me in verse 35. He says, Who shall separate us from the love of Christ? Shall tribulation or distress or persecution or famine or nakedness or danger or sword? As it is written, for your sake we are being killed all the day long. We are regarded as sheep to be slaughtered. No, in all these things we are more than conquerors through him who loved us. For I am persuaded that neither death nor life nor angels nor rulers nor things present nor things to come nor powers nor height nor depth nor any other uh, nor anything else in all creation will be able to separate us from the love of God in Christ Jesus our Lord. Can my troubles or hardships or persecution separate me? No. Can famine or nakedness or danger or sword? No. In all this we are more than conquerors. We conquer through Jesus Christ. It's not through our own strength or our own ingenuity. It is through Christ we are more than conquerors. What about death? Will death separate me from the love of God in Christ? No, because the Bible says absent from the body, present with the Lord. What about angels? Will angels separate the child of God from God? No. Remember how Hebrews 1 closes out? That angels are ministering spirits sent to minister to those who will inherit eternal life. Can demons separate me from the love of God? No. Paul says in Colossians 2, when he had disarmed the rulers and authorities, he made a public display of them, having triumphed over them through him. Greater is he who is in me than he who is in the world. How about the present? Can the present separate me? No. Remember what Moses learned about God? God said to Moses, I am the, I am the great I am. In other words, Moses, anything you go through in the present, I'm going to be more than sufficient for you. How about the future? Can the future separate you from the love of God that's in Christ? No. Jesus said, let not your hearts be troubled. You believe in God, believe also in me. In my Father's house are many mansions. I go to prepare a place for you. There's no power, no height, no debt, nothing in all creation. That is the calm assurance we have. We are predestined for glory. We are preserved for glory all by the sovereign hand and power of God. God uses everything in the believer's life to move us along our course to glory. He who began a good work in you will continue it into the day of Jesus Christ. Folks, to have Jesus means that you have it all. A wealthy Roman had a son who broke his heart. And he had a slave by the name of Marcellus who had nothing but the man's admiration. When the man was on his deathbed, knowing that his son had broken his heart and would probably squander everything away, he called his son in and said, Son, I've got something I need to tell you. I have given everything I have, everything I have, I have willed it to my, to my servant, Marcellus. Marcellus gets it all. However, son, because you are my son, I'm going to reserve one thing for you to tell me that you want. 
one thing. Marcellus gets it all, but one thing. What is the one thing that you want? And the son said, Father, I'll take Marcellus. When you take Christ, you get it all. No condemnation, no frustration, no isolation, no limitation, and no separation. With Christ, you get it all. Would you bow your heads in prayer with me this morning, please? Do you know Jesus Christ in a personal way? If not, I want you to understand this morning that you get none of this. You get none of this if you are outside of Christ. The Bible says you stand condemned. You are alone. You do not have a promising future. In fact, you have anything but a promising future. You will be eternally separated from God. Come to Christ. Come to Christ. If you come to Him, then all of these promises, all of these assurances belong to you. Come to Him. I'll be down front to pray with you in a minute. You say, what do I do? Step out of the pew where where you are. When we begin singing the hymn of invitation, come forward and say, Pastor, I need to be born again. I need Jesus. If you have come to Christ already and been born again, you may not always feel like it, but based on God's promises, You enjoy all these wonderful things we've spoken of today. You're not alone. Your life is not spinning out of control with one coincidence on top of another. You need to see that God is purposefully at work in you. You can believe it. It's God's promise. You can live in hope and not despair. Father, may these promises sink into the heart of every believer. May they see how rich they are, not in themselves, but in Christ. May we live out of these promises and assurances. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.